This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to season one of The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Welcome to Race to Value. This week, for the first time, we have two guests coming your way from the Cumberland Center for Healthcare Innovation, CCHI. We have Dr. Brent Staten, Chief Executive Officer, and Dr. Ty Webb, Chief Medical Officer. CCHI is a physician-led ACO uniquely comprised of rural, independent family medicine and primary care providers. 255 primary care providers, a very lean team. They believe in working collaboratively with practices. This is an ACO that is in 77 of the 95 counties in Tennessee. They're reaching out into Kentucky. They're likely to be in North Alabama in the future. Outside of their Medicare ACO, which has 15,000 lives. They also have a significant commercial presence at 10 to 15,000 lives, and they are doing such great work. And after thinking about our conversation with Dr. Staten and Webb, I just, what really resonated with me, Daniel, was just how much these physicians in this ACO are really driven to lead with their heart. They didn't get into the ACO business because of shared savings. You know, to them, this means something. This is a way to truly transform outcomes in their community. Eric, you're spot on. When you talk about the heart, you know, you feel it when when you listen to these guys talk about their relationships with their community, with their patients. You know, rural health care is personal health care. The, these healthcare providers go to church, they go shopping, and, and they work the land with their patients. And they see their patients throughout the community consistently. They know their patients' needs and preferences and values. And, and it's kind of what providers throughout healthcare aspire to understand about their patients. And these guys epitomize that. And, and Eric, when you talk about how invested they are in, in this opportunity and, and not being in it for the money, it just stands out that one of the highlights of this conversation is when they help us understand the economic imperative. And we hear that from Governor Levitt in our intro, that there's an economic imperative, but these guys take the economic imperative to their community and recognizing 
the impact that health has on an economy and that their goal is to move their community to a level of health that allows for economic investment in their community. It's, it's such a great mission and a fascinating conversation that I know our listeners are really going to value. So let's dive into this week's Race to Value conversation with Dr. Staten and Dr. Webb. Well, Dr. Staten, Dr. Webb, we're so pleased to have you today on the Race to Value podcast. We're happy to be here. Thank you. Glad to be with you. Thanks so much. And we were thinking a lot about this episode, and I learned a great deal about the Cumberland Center for Healthcare Innovation, or CCHI. And there was one theme that really stood out to me, and that's rural healthcare. It's personal. And with your ACO, there's such a deep connection in the community, which I think in many ways makes your job as a provider so much easier. It's this deep personal awareness of your patient's needs, values, and preferences. And it's what urban doctors long for. I hear it all the time. So you stated it this way when we had a conversation the other day and you said, you know, we live here and this is our home. And when I hear that, I think of the disconnect with urban healthcare professionals in many respects. I mean, they can effectively remove themselves from their patients at the end of the workday. But when you guys go to out in the community, you go to church, you see your patients, you're, you see them in the grocery store, you work alongside them and building and planting and harvesting. So I thought we could start this conversation off today on a personal note and have each of you introduce yourselves. But also, you know, tell me what led you to practicing medicine in rural Tennessee and what is life like for a rural provider, both around medicine and also at home? I would love to hear that. And I think our listeners really enjoyed this introduction to rural Tennessee. Would you like to start, Dr. Webb? Sure, I'd be glad to. So I, uh, I'm actually not a native Tennessean. My dad was in the military, and so I grew up in a couple different places. But most of my childhood was in Indiana. My backyard was a cornfield, but we were a suburb of Indianapolis, so kind of had the, a mix of rural and urban. Ultimately, I uh, was fortunate enough to settle in Tennessee. That's probably a longer story, but uh, I was looking for, uh, always wanted to, to go into medicine, be a physician. I was looking for a more rural location to practice. There had been a bit of a, and still is a challenge in getting physicians to be in rural areas. Before I moved there, there had been one or two stable physicians over the last 20 or 30 years, but there had been a bit of a rotation where doctors would come and go about every two or three years, usually to pay off loans or that sort of thing. And the most common question I received the first five years I was in practice was, nice to meet you, but how long are you staying? And I always said, well, at least hope to stay until my youngest graduates from high school. Well, I've done that, and he's graduating from college this next year, so I guess I have to come up with a different answer to that question, but I don't get asked much anymore. We, uh, we feel like we're, we're at home where we are, and when we go to church or the store and we meet our patients, that's, that's okay because they, are, they also are providing services for the community, and, and we all know each other. So whether they uh, run the, the car dealership or uh, the local hair salon or the preacher at church, or we interact with each other in lots of different ways. I think I'll step in here now. I'm Dr. Brent Staten. I'm a family medicine physician in a relatively small town called Cookville, Tennessee. We're in Putnam County, which is right between Nashville and Knoxville. We're just a little bit north of Dr. Webb. He's about 20 minutes from us. But what led to uh, practicing medicine in rural Tennessee for me really is roots of family. Kind of go back generations in my family in the state of Tennessee. I grew up working on my grandparents' farm about 50 miles from here in a little community called Powell Mouth, Tennessee. We had the home place farm, which was a couple hundred acres, 
what we called up on the river. A lot, a lot of Tennesseans will understand that comment up on the river. But I didn't really start out to be a physician in my life, to be honest with you. I uh, started out trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I really didn't figure out I wanted to be a doctor until I was probably in my early 20s. Kind of switched gears, uh, finished my bachelor's degree in business, and decided to go into medical school. So I took a little bit of a scenic route through life. So it's a little bit different than most doctors that go kind of straight through, you know, want to be a doctor when they're 15 or 16 and they work toward that goal. My life kind of led me in the direction. So I sort of ended up doing what my life showed me to do instead of choosing uh, early on that that's what I needed to be. You know, having having been raised in Middle Tennessee area and grown up working on a farm and working out in the fields, hauling hay and cutting tobacco and stripping tobacco, what felt like every Thanksgiving, if it went seemed to rain every Thanksgiving whenever tobacco was in case. So you got to have Thanksgiving lunch and then run out to uh, strip tobacco. But that was good uh, because it kind of taught you the, the deep ingrained values of hard work and you know the values that you find in rural Americans, the care for the community. You know We would have folks come in who would help us from the community whenever we would have our tobacco crop singer come in. They didn't care if it was Thanksgiving. That was okay. They needed to be there just as much as you needed them to be there because it was ingrained in their soul. It was ingrained in who they were to help your neighbor and to be there for each other. And that's kind of, I think, what really drives a lot of our doctors. uh, Well, actually, all of our doctors that I've had the pleasure of working with throughout our organization is that deep drive and and love for their community and that that ingrained feeling of being a rural citizen, if you will, in, in America. Doctors, what a great answer and so visually compelling. You know, we've started by talking about this strength that's found in rural communities, and, and I don't think it can be overstated. I'd like to shift gears a little bit and talk about some of your challenges that are quite unique. I'm going to highlight a couple statistics for context for our listeners and, and then ask you to elaborate. So according to America's health rankings, Tennessee placed in 42nd place for overall health for your population this past year. Surrounding states are in similar positions. Tennessee's leading causes of death are heart disease and cancer. According to the 2000 census, the median income for a household in the county where you are, Dr. Staten, is $30,900, and 14.7% of the population were below the poverty line. You've got significant challenges with lack of resources, and such as social and community services that I think urban areas take for granted, like food banks, even hospitals. Another major challenge is the drug and alcohol use and misuse and addiction. And and I should note that in your area, we're seeing a downward trend of opioid prescribing, but there really are very limited treatment options for these things. And one of the challenges, even if there is a treatment option, is that in a small town where everybody knows each other, you know whose car is parked in front of the treatment center. So that kind of limits people's willingness necessarily to receive treatment. Can you help us really understand the reality and depth of these challenges and, and limitations? And how does rural healthcare manage in the face of these? How do you get funding to address them? And what difference does being an ACO make for your ability to take the steps that, that are needed to fix these issues? That's interesting. Whenever you ask the depth of the challenges, I had a visual image of a deep black ocean because the depth of the challenges in rural healthcare are as deep as the sea. So we address these issues with our patients on an individual basis. You know, every time one patient comes in, it's a new patient. They have new problems, they have new issues. We do have an opioid epidemic as the rest of the nation does. 
we do have extremely limited resources in uh, rural Tennessee. We have a county in Tennessee who lacks a healthcare provider entirely that, that we kind of encompass within our ACO. We surround that county, so we try to provide services for them. We don't have hospitals remaining. We've had many hospitals close in our rural communities, unfortunately. You know, the new models in healthcare aren't necessarily always drawn up to match the lack of services. You know, the, all of the organizations tend to be speaking on SDOH, social determinants of health. We've been dealing with social determinants of health since we began our first day of practice. Lacking, if you will, in one of those areas, well, if they only lacked in one, that would be awesome. But lacking in a plethora of those areas is, unfortunately for us, standard operations. You know, traditionally, we had relied on family in communities to care for their their elderly parents and, and to care for their families. But unfortunately, Dr. Webb and I were talking earlier about how spread out, if you will, families are becoming. And those resources are no longer available. So we're looking more in depth in the community uh, to provide those resources. And it's just not there, unfortunately. So we have to make sure we have a, a more high-touch approach to our patients in primary care in a rural setting. So with this high-touch approach, we're able to communicate with them, whether it be by telephone or in person or do home visits. Whatever the need is, is, is what we will fulfill. You know, because like you were saying in the first question, I mean, these are our neighbors. These are our friends. These are people we know. These are people we go to church with, we shop with, you know, we live with. It's not distant for us. You know, this is very personal for us. Our ACO, although it encompasses 77 counties out of 95 in the state of Tennessee, every single county within our organization is personal to each and every doctor within our organization, even if they don't live there, because they have the same feelings, they have the same attachment to Van Buren County as they would Overton County, as they would Lincoln County, as they would Shelby County or Davidson County because they understand the needs of those communities. So when we come together and, and we discuss how to fulfill those difficulties in rural health, the ACO allows us to talk to the doctors across our state and spread the ideas that may be working in Lincoln County that we may not have thought of in White County. So the, you know, it gives us an opportunity. It's almost unimaginable being able to come together as a group like we do in order to meet a lot of the challenges that rural health presents every day. Well, as much as I learned about the Cumberland Center for Healthcare Innovation, I was really enamored by the, the way you came about together in forming this ACO and trying to tackle some of these unique challenges in the rural communities that you serve. And to your point, I mean, it's a, it's a deep sea of challenges within uh, rural communities. I mean, you have disproportionate burden of chronic disease, restricted access to care often. You have uh, geographic isolation and lack of public transportation. You have issues with health literacy and you might have challenges with unemployment. And there was something that really stuck with me when I learned about what CCHI was thinking as you formed the ACO. Um, you had this mission, like we're gonna come together and we're not just going to focus on the healthcare of our community. Of course, that's first and foremost, but the way you approach health, it's more holistic. You know, you're thinking about, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, I really saw that CCHI was all about building the economic opportunities as well, because that's the big equalizer in health. You know, if you could eliminate barriers and allocate resources for the people that you serve, it's a lift 
for the entire community. And can you speak to uh, Dr. Staten, Dr. Webb, just how your mission was able to drive not only the formation of the ACO, but your continued success and what have those outcomes been in terms of not only improving outcomes, but building economic strength in the community? Absolutely. So to start from a community standpoint, and then uh, I'll, I'll pass it to Dr. Webb from a practice standpoint and, and kind of blend the two together. So in the beginning of the ACO, uh, we came together as kind of a small group of, of physicians, and we, all, we were only in 14 counties at the time. But we saw that if we had healthier schools, which were healthier students, we could improve education over time. We saw that if we had healthier workforce, which equates also to healthier parents, we would have healthier schools and we could improve productivity in our communities. That would be attractive for business and lead to job opportunities within our communities. So the goal of us coming together was absolutely the quadruple aim, which I'm sure everyone's clearly aware of that. But we also looked at it from a larger area because again, these are our communities. These are our people, if you will. This is our home. And you know, we looked at this and we saw an opportunity to provide higher quality of care within our communities to kind of reach out and provide increased value, increased community value, which would then make our areas attractive for corporations, which we've seen a large group of business opportunities coming to our areas over the last several years. And we hope to see more because we work very diligently to make sure our workforce is healthy and our schools are healthy. From a foundational standpoint, as the community begins to grow and develop uh, over time, there are lots of different pieces that go into that, of course. I remember back to my, uh, my days of studying natural history and biology, and if you look at the natural history of, of a field or of a meadow, what happens is you may have a pond, it slowly fills in, then you have grass and then trees grow, and before long you have a forest. And when you look at rural communities, they, they grow and develop in much the same way in sort of a, a pattern of strength and complexity and diversity from that standpoint. So if you look at education and you look at healthcare, those are two really important foundations for a community to begin to grow and develop and progress. And so if a group of people come together and live in an area beyond just the basic needs of food, clothing, and shelter, then the next step is going to be, is this community going to grow further? And so with education and with healthcare, then that next step can begin to progress. So you mentioned hospital closures. We've lost three hospitals in our region in the last couple of years, uh, which has been very detrimental to those communities. There have been a few practices closed as well. And so we know that hospitals provide jobs. We know that um, the educational system provides jobs. And if you lose either one of those in a community, you really take a huge step backward, both from a job standpoint economically, but just from a moving forward standpoint, you, you lose all that momentum. Uh, an individual primary care practice can bring as, as much as one to two million dollars of, and I'm not just talking to the practice. I, I think the latest figure that I saw, and this is a few years old, was a medical practice, uh, a doctor could bring to the community a couple million dollars of economic benefit. And, and that's just in the jobs and the revenue that that practice brings to the community. So that, that drives overall economic development in the entire community. Hospitals, several fold on top of that, obviously. And so as an ACO, our goal and our mission is to not just have practices and hospitals survive, 
Uh, we want them to be successful. We want them to thrive. Hanging on by a thread really isn't enough because whether it's your health and you're hanging on by a thread or whether it's your economic solvency uh, as a family or a company, uh, it only takes one small interruption to doom that entity, whatever it is. It could be your body. It could be a, a business. So we want these practices to be thriving and successful. And so from an ACO standpoint, uh, we help to stabilize the practices through communication, for sure, but also through uh, stabilization of revenue for the practice, through standardization of policies and procedures, basically in, in how we deliver care. As Dr. Staten mentioned, we learn from each other. We may have a, a, a practice in, in rural Lincoln County that's doing just amazing things that people haven't heard of, and they found that it works, but nobody knows about it because they're so isolated. But by working together, we can grow and learn from each other. With all the the rapid change in healthcare in the last decade, for sure, uh, every year it seems to accelerate. It's become very difficult for practices to keep up with those changes and, and to remain even open. So we've been able to help support them with that as well and negotiate those changes. We have uh, staff here, a small staff, but a staff that supports those practices and provides communication. And so we improve quality of care, we improve practice efficiency, we improve satisfaction on the part of the patients, and then we also improve the satisfaction and, and long-term viability, uh, sustainability of the uh, medical personnel that are providing the services. I want to talk about next a key priority for you that builds on this uh, mission you have to improve the economy. One of the key priorities in this is you say, no more heads in beds. And for a hospital-led ACO, that philosophy could lead dissonance as it disrupts their standard revenue streams. But for physician-led ACO like CCHI, it really aligns perfectly with your goals. And from industry research recently, uh, an article in the American Journal of Managed Care last month from our ACLC research partner, David Muelstein, we know that physician groups are becoming the dominant type of new entrant into the ACO space. And and have been most successful in achieving savings to date. And these physician-led ACLs of which you're a part are generating $180 per member per month in savings on average. So rather than being paid by heads in beds, you suggest that hospitals should instead be reimbursed on acuity. And obviously, as a large physician-led ACO, you still need to work with the hospitals in your communities. And some of our listeners may find it surprising, but You've told us you're having conversations with hospitals and they understand your goals. They support your goals and, and you're not getting this pushback. And so I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to this dynamic between, you know, hospital-led ACO motivators versus the physician-led and what makes physician-led ACOs more likely to succeed in the current health value landscape and, and how are you seeing the relationship with your hospitals play out and, and why they're supportive of, of your objective? Yeah, we've had several conversations, uh, you know, especially with our local hospital, I guess, in, in Cookville. It's Cook, Cookville Regional Medical Center. It's one of the uh, leaders, I guess, in cardiac care. You know, it's it's wonderful to have that regional hospital within this area, this rural Tennessee area. But, you know, conversations with other hospitals as well. You can imagine we we have a lot of conversations with a lot of hospitals, you know, being in 77 counties. Uh, but we've gotten very little pushback uh, whenever we talk about 
you know, the ability of the hospital to provide the care that they really need to be providing and that they want to be providing, which is high acuity care. We prevent hospitalizations for things we can manage outpatient, pneumonias, urinary tract infections, you know, typical what we would consider low acuity admissions, which can sometimes be a burden to a system, especially in times like now. It kind of speaks to the time of being in a pandemic when, you know, a urosepsis admission can take a bed for uh, someone who may have a pneumonia that's based on COVID at this time. So I think it's played itself out to prove that acuity of care uh, for a hospital is more important than heads in the bed. And I think the hospitals are realizing that a little bit more now. You know, our goal is not to prevent a necessary hospitalization. Our goal is not to prevent someone from accessing emergency care when they need it. Our goal is certainly not to prevent someone from getting any medical service that they absolutely need, but our goal is to make sure our patients receive the appropriate care and early interventions that they need and deserve in order to have the highest quality of healthcare. And hospitals have been communicating with us more effectively. We get ADT feeds from them. They make sure, you know, periodically we revisit this idea to re reinforce it. They make sure that they communicate with their primary care physicians in the community to make sure we receive information if a hospital has one of our patients inpatient or in the emergency room, they communicate with us in a way to prevent that person from overutilizing services that really they may need uh, to come to my office. And, and I don't mean this in a condescending way in any way, but they may, maybe they need to uh, have their hand held for a few minutes and, and listen, let someone listen to what they have to say. So you can really identify the true depth of their problem instead of, you know, them going to the emergency room for maybe something that may be recurrent, but they're not receiving the care that they need. They're just receiving care. So yeah, the hospitals have been extremely supportive of us in providing that high quality care for the patients. So I could speak to Overton County, uh, which is a small county in Tennessee that actually came together as a community to decrease the number of readmissions for their local hospital. They had members from home health, they had members from churches, they had members from other community organizations, they had hospital. Uh, members of this organization, that this group, I guess, that came together, and they have made leaps and bounds. They probably have one of the lowest readmission rates in the state of Tennessee, and that was a community-driven effort, you know, to reach out and care for those individuals who may be having repeat readmissions that were unnecessary. Well, I wanted to ask you about the impact of COVID-19 on your communities that you serve. We all know that COVID-19 has dramatically and negatively impacted all sectors of the economy, and the medical industry has been severely impacted. Uh, they were already many organizations on razor-thin margins and had limited resources and funding, especially primary care. And, you know, I was reading months ago when the outbreak happened, you know, health affairs projected, you know, this was uh, researchers out of Harvard, and they were saying, you know, primary care practices on the aggregate are going to lose about $15 billion because of the impact of COVID-19. I think about that, and I wanted to ask you about the primary care practices in your ACO and how they were doing, the, you know, the disheartening 
awakening realization across the country. Many practices are thinking about, you know, are they going to face potential closure and the, the people that work in those practices, are they going to lose their livelihoods? And, and of course, I also wanted to ask you about the patients that you serve, the people in your community, and just looking at the unemployment rates in Tennessee, you know, 3% prior to COVID. And, you know, as of April from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, it was, they were saying about 15.5% unemployment. This is obviously has a devastating effect across the country, but uh, can you speak to, you know, Dr. Staten and Webb, you know, how your practices are doing as well as your patients? How are you getting through this historical moment right now? It's definitely been a very high stress event on our practices as well as our communities. Primary care is already on, Dr. Webb points this out quite often, extremely thin margins. Primary care was already fighting to survive prior to COVID-19 a lot of primary care practices likely will close across our country. I mean, you've read the studies as much as I have. I mean, you commented about how, you know, estimated $15 billion loss in primary care practices across the country. That's an unsustainable model, obviously. Fortunately for us, as an ACO, over the years, we've been extremely, as far as fiscal preparedness or fiscal fiscally conservative, I guess would be a good way to put it. I mean, we prepare for the worst as far as finances go. We have reserve funds set aside for self-insurance in risk contracts as an ACO. We had reserve funds set aside in case of emergency or if there was a need that presented itself as an ACO. We were able to distribute those funds to our practices while we were gearing up into the process of assisting them firsthand in order to apply for the PPP assistance that was provided by the federal government. We were able to assist them And I'd love for Dr. Webb to speak to the telemedicine implementation. If you talk about rapid activities and being able to be nimble in their approach, Uh, Dr. Webb headed up the implementation of the telemedicine programs throughout many of the practices, and he did it in just like lightning speed. So fortunately for us, uh, with planning for the unknown and with the expectation of something probably going to happen in the future negative, and likely it will again. So we're already planning, you know, as far as an ACO, you know, standpoint and practice standpoint to begin building those reserve funds again. We've we've almost got them rebuilt through our recent shared savings based on their distribution and, and reserve funds that we're going to replenish. So we're we're extremely cautious as an organization. And fortunately for us, we're, you know, we can be much more nimble as a physician-led ACO and a, a close board leadership ACO than say a corporate-based ACO that may be spread across a different mindset, if you will. So telemedicine, telehealth, the terms are kind of defined differently depending on on where you're talking about them and who's defining them, but I'm I'm going to use them interchangeably. So telemedicine and telehealth. These were services, uh, are services that basically uh, there's been a need for, for for quite some time. There had been a hesitancy on several fronts to to sort of allowing implementation of that. I know several state boards of medicine uh, a decade or so ago started making some future-sighted plans to how how telemedicine would be sort of licensed and regulated from a medical standpoint. And turns out that was really beneficial because when uh, when the need suddenly became hugely apparent this year, the medical side of things uh, was really ready to go. What we needed was really the permission, if you will, of the payers to provide that service and then to 
to be paid for it so that we could continue to employ our staff to provide the services. The platforms, which 20 years ago were intermittent and somewhat lacking, uh, today everybody has that platform in the palm of their hand just about. Uh, Although some of our patients don't have cell phones in our areas, but nonetheless, telephones or video communication with a cell phone or a computer is much more accessible today than it has been in past years. And so that technology is is there. It has independently developed. And so pretty much everything was in place for telemedicine to be implemented. We just needed to go ahead. And uh, when that was allowed, basically, the the door was unlocked, if you will. We were able to now uh, communicate with our patients, address their health needs uh, without them necessarily coming to the office. And there are some cases where you still have to do that. But there are also many cases for a patient that that I know uh, and I've examined multiple times. We really just need to look at each other and talk about what's going on and have a meaningful conversation uh, so that they can know what to do next so that I can be assured of where they are medically. And so all of our physicians across the organization were in the same situation. Uh, and their patients were in the same situation. So suddenly this became a great way to socially distance while taking care of people. As the economic uh, impact continues to hit, uh, resources are becoming thinner and thinner, and and some of our patients don't even have the ability to get to the office. Uh, They don't have transportation. Sometimes they may have a vehicle but no gas. Sometimes they don't even have a vehicle. Uh, We do not have effective public transportation in the rural counties. There is a a patchwork of services, but it's not quickly responsive to patients' needs. And so telemedicine becomes an excellent way to address uh, health needs, both continuity of care and health maintenance, as well as uh, acute needs that arise and uh, become a great tool uh, for the practices. One thing Dr. Webb didn't mention in that was, if I look back over time, uh, our ACO's planning and that's what we talked about previously. It's like being cautious with your planning and preparing for the worst. About two to three years ago, we actually began developing the implementation of telemedicine um, when, I guess, the market was ready for it. So one of the reasons we were able to roll this out so rapidly is because we had pre, pre-prepared, if you will. So we were actually prepared early in order to roll out telemedicine at the time that our practices would need it. It's, uh, it's funny, I, I, it becomes so organic with the organization, I had completely forgotten that. But yes, we, we put about three years of groundwork into that. We did. Just, just waiting for the time. I want to follow up on this conversation and just ask another question. Is there additional help for or private funding, government funding, other sources of funding for your telehealth infrastructure to be built to help people get access to broadband or the technology that they would need for a deeper adoption rates in your communities? Unfortunately, nothing that we're aware of in our communities. It is very lacking. You know, One of the questions with the school system on implementation of possible at-home schooling that they were facing was the lack of ability for some students to have access to broadband. So I think it's something that needs to probably be addressed a little bit um, more robustly from an infrastructure standpoint. You know, whether that's state or federal approach to that, I'm not, you know, you guys would know better than I probably would know about that. But um, I think it would be a a very high return on investment 
for government involvement to to develop that sort of infrastructure. It's kind of like roads. Information highway. Mm-hmm. It is. Yeah, it is. I, I think about the the role of the government in this, and you know, not to get too political, but some of the projections out there are saying that rural America could be hit the hardest by COVID nineteen just because of the the fewer medical facilities than urban and suburban areas, and then you have longstanding systemic health and social inequities that really put rural residents at risk of getting COVID nineteen. And I just wanted to compliment you both. I see that you're out there exercising your civic responsibility to get the word. Out and, and make sure your patients are informed. And for example, I saw on social media, you were recorded a video just urging the community to wear masks and take the pandemic seriously. And, and it is a serious pandemic. Obviously, there's been some mismanagement, but it seems like rural communities really do need the help to get through this, uh, as well as other stakeholders across the country, of course. But one of the things that I, I was really impressed about and just learning about CCHI's response to this, and I want you to uh, explain this a little bit to our listeners, but your part part of a, a broader task force in the communities that you serve that is addressing this COVID-19 pandemic. Can you speak a little bit about who's involved in this task force and how is that effort you know, being received? And are there any results early on in terms of raising awareness and being able to you know, help the folks in need to get through this? Well, what we did uh, as an organization after speaking with many of our physicians is we developed an internal uh, COVID task force. We had looked at the data and, and run our own predictive data analytics on this. And um, we had projected about 2,000 deaths by about, was it August 31st? Or was it August, August 1st? First. Uh, August 1st. So we, we kind of run the numbers and projected about 2,000 deaths in Tennessee by about August 1st. And I think that's about what hit. We won't share our, our future projections with you, especially in this, because we, we like to stay very, very, very apolitical as an organization. But internally, we're working very diligently, and we began a COVID task force. Uh, We have 11 physicians that are on that throughout the organization, and we have many community representatives as well. We have former mayors, we have school directors, we have nursing home administrators. That's just an example of some of the individuals that are on it. And we were able to intervene in uh, nursing homes early on in our areas. So our physicians who were nursing home medical directors we were able to have conversations with them and pull projections to Tennessee early from what we saw happen in New York or Italy or you know different countries based on the population densities of those of those locations and so we were able to intervene and if it's one life saved then it's worth the effort but we were able to intervene with those early in order to hopefully prevent the spread of the virus into nursing homes even more than than what was happening. You know, this was a very unknown thing. You had to act very rapidly based on the data that you had. Fortunately, Dr. Webb and I were, it's kind of ironic, we were actually out of town when COVID-19 was kind of beginning to ramp up the first week. And fortunately for us, we had the opportunity to converse with an individual who was an owner of nursing home facilities throughout Texas. She was an owner of several. She gave us great insight into some of her expectations and things she was doing as far as early intervention go. And that allowed us then to turn around and get that out to our practices, get that out to our medical medical directors of those nursing homes. So, you know, we do a lot of things kind of behind the scenes that we don't really talk about. We do them 
because it's what's right. We don't do them because we talk about it. We're looking to make our homes better. And whenever I say our homes, our home would include the state of Tennessee and southern Kentucky and northern Alabama and northern Georgia, because those are the regions that we touch. So, you know, we do these things as an ACO to maintain our practice viability, and we do these things as an ACO to develop our communities and provide more value, not just directly to each individual patient, but to provide more value for our communities as a whole and our state. I love listening to you talk about the importance of communicating the seriousness of the disease and minimizing its spread. And I followed your social media as well and just am impressed by all that you're doing. And I want to circle back to talking about the success of the ACO and your ACO's performance. And recently the MSSP results came out and you're doing very well. As an ACO, you're established in 2012 and you know, at that time on the very bleeding edge of value-based payment reform with other early adopters. And, and since that time, I've hit many benchmarks. And just want to highlight, over the past seven years, your ACO has grown to 225 providers and has saved CMS over $43 million. And at the same time, you've achieved a 98.48% quality score. And this success is honestly quite amazing. And I think our listeners would be anxious to hear about how a few small physicians, as you mentioned early on, were able to pull together such an impressive cohort of peers and deliver such great results. And so a few questions around this topic, you know, I'd love for you to address how you achieved the physician buy-in. What does membership look like for the physicians who join your organization? Maybe you could talk a little bit about the design of your governance structure, your relationship with your payers, and you know shared savings distribution. I know that's a lot, <laughs> so, but uh, I think it's all important. Those are all elements of success and, and maybe any other successful pieces that I missed that, that you think would be important to bring up. That's basically, how do y'all do that? Is kind of what I heard in that question. <laughs> so governance structure, uh, really quickly, uh, we have physician members of our board. It varies between eight and nine members. We also have a Medicare beneficiary. He likes to refer to himself as the Balding Benny, but he's a brilliant individual, a lieutenant colonel from the Army, and he's run medical practices himself, so he's been a great benefit to us as well. Of course, we have finance committee. Uh, We have physician members of it. We have a former CFO of a hospital and an accountant who are on those committees. We have our clinical transformation council, which Dr. Webb runs. We've got 12 physicians engaged in it, and sometimes 13 if I show up. You know, like I said, we had our COVID task force that we still have kind of banded together. There's 11 individual physicians involved in it and others that can join it, you know, anytime they wish. They, they kind of come on and off based on what's going on in their community. One of the things that we have found as an ACO, now our, our quality scores, it's kind of interesting. Generally, Dr. Webb talks about this. I talk about it on a global level, not on a micro level like he does, (laughs) but our quality scores have ranged early on as low as 87.24%. So that gave us the opportunity to give us kind of a benchmark. Okay. So we weren't going to go below that, obviously. And we were able to go in 18 as high as 98.48%. We had a 98.76% year. So we were, we're pretty happy generally with quality, you know, quality is something that we probably could do an entire podcast on discussing as far as 
the benefits of it, what you know, recommendations from rural medicine standpoint may not necessarily be the same as you know someone outside. But as far as from an ACO standpoint, you know, talking about our our success, we've been positive in corridor, and anybody who knows ACOs will understand what that means year over year over year, and we've gotten shared savings majority of those years. So what we did is we implemented processes beginning around 2013 when we finally got our minds wrapped around this a little bit into 14, very diligently on keeping processes simple that are delivered to the practices. One of the problems I think that I see with the majority of you know organizations in general, not just healthcare, is taking an idea and being able to implement that idea in actual practice. Fortunately, as an ACO, we have engaged practices, highly engaged practices, who we have built trust with. And without that trust, you're not going to get patient engagement, you're not going to get physician engagement, you're not going to get practice engagement. And all three of those are paramount in order to have a successful ACO. So whenever we implement processes, we have pilot programs typically, where we'll roll out a pilot program to, you know, between two and three practices to make sure what we're doing is the correct thing to do. Sometimes it's not, sometimes it is. Fortunately, because we have so many committees that it goes through before we roll out a pilot, and we have so much physician input, that typically about 85% of the time we're, we're pretty much headed in the right direction. So knock on wood, we keep that up. So that was that's a positive. But once those pilot programs prove themselves out to be successful, then we roll it out ACO-wide. So we already have the kinks worked out of the implementation process, which a lot of organizations, you know, they'll have an idea on high, and then they'll roll it out with the expectation of the practices or the organization as a whole to adjust to their idea. That's not always the best approach, especially whenever you're working with individual medical practices across such a broad swath of, of communities. So it's it's an ever-evolving work in progress. We'll never reach the point to where we're, we're satisfied with our success because we can always do better by our patients. There's never a time we can't do better by our patients. And that's, that's what's important within our practices is they all know that. They all agree with that. And we're striving harder and harder to provide better care, higher quality care to our patients. And we're, we're happy to say that over the course of our contract with CMS, we've been able to contribute our part, hopefully, in you know, kind of maintaining Medicare for future generations because as a small organization, we've been able to save $43 million for Medicare while providing very high quality for our patients. You know, whenever we saw our quality come back at 87.24% on that first 2014 year after the pay for reporting year of 13, we were very unhappy with that. So in a couple of years, it took us to go from 87.24 up to 98.76. And we've been hovering around there. Of course, you're going to have ups and downs a little bit. We have high expectations of our organization because if you look back at why we came together, we figured if we got shared savings, then that's great. But if we didn't, that was fine too, because we were going to provide higher quality care. We were going to provide services to our practices that they've never had before. We were going to provide input and insight from practices across the area and the region so we could kind of come together as a cohesive group under one umbrella. You know, in doing so, provide the kind of care that we feel that our, our patients deserve to receive. Now, in that, we were able to communicate with some private payers. Fortunately for us, we were able to attain some communications and relationships with those payers. 
and I'm gonna have Dr. Webb kind of speak to those contracts. If yeah, absolutely. The image of the curtain being pulled back is is one that just uh, continues to resound with us. It's almost like uh, if you've ever watched uh, The Wizard of Oz, uh, it's when when Dorothy's in the Emerald Kingdom and everybody's trying to figure out what mystical thing is happening, and all of a sudden somebody pulls back the big green curtain and you see what's really going on. So that's how eye-opening it was for the physicians across the country, and certainly in our organization, to see what was happening with the money, what services cost. It sounds crazy now to even say it, but we had no idea. We had no idea how much services cost, whether it was a hospitalization or a home health care. We sort of knew medicines because uh, we constantly got feedback from patients on those, but even those are, uh, even today, still a bit mystical, uh, how you figure out how much a medicine is going to cost. So having the availability of data to the physicians is critical. It may go without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway because I've just run into some people who think that medicine, the practice of medicine, the practice of taking care of somebody with their needs, it really just boils down to, you know, checking a few boxes. And it's not that. There's, it's actually very complex. There's the science involved, which is very complex. And then there's all the interaction with, as we've mentioned, the social determinants of health. Uh, you've got all the payer factors in there, and then you have patient choices in there. So it it becomes a very complex system. And physicians, uh, physician-led teams are still the most efficient way to deliver the care. And once once those physician-led teams became aware of what the cost was for the benefit being obtained for the patient, then it became much easier to direct what sort of care was going to be utilized for what problem. Again, it sounds very simplistic to talk about it in retrospect, but that's really how things have developed. And so insurance companies have been uh, really in charge of the of the dollars for healthcare. And, you know, it makes good sense, right? You spread out the risk over a lot of people and, and hopefully everybody gets the care they need. And that's that's ideal. Uh, that's, that's why insurance exists, why I got started. Private insurance companies, whether it be Medicare Advantage plans or, uh, or more what we would call commercial type insurance companies, are always looking for value because they have a certain finite pool of money to draw from and they have a large amount of care to provide for. And so they're looking for efficient ways of delivering that care and using those dollars wisely. So uh, our organization came to their attention through a variety of uh, relationships. And through those conversations, we've been able to uh, develop contracts with uh, Blue Cross and Blue Shield and with Humana and with Cigna. And those private contracts, they're all structured a little bit differently, but the idea is still the same. Let's provide high-quality care. There's always a quality component. We call that uh, the QI, uh, so to speak. There's always a performance component, which is the dollar savings. That's the the PI component. There's a satisfaction component. Make sure that the the patients are getting what they they need. So you have to talk to people from a survey standpoint. And then there's the provider satisfaction. And if if you're losing the medical personnel, then you're not going to have care. So the provider staff and personnel has to be satisfied with where things are going as well so that they have the tools they need to take care of people. And that, that has uh, has progressed well. Yeah, I think you can probably tell in our answers to your questions that um, we're, we're surely not in this for the dollars. You can probably tell that you know our number one goal isn't you know, the money. I mean, I, my grandfather always told me, and whether it's uh, pumping gas or washing windows or hauling hay, if you do the right thing, the money will come. If you do what people want and you do what's right by people, you'll be fine, son. Just don't worry about it. So 
I kind of remember that from being younger, and he, he had to beat that in my head a few times. But, you know, our private contracts, we have a Cigna. We have a Cigna CAC. We work with our Medicare arm now. We work with Humana Medicare Advantage, and we work with Blue Cross Blue Shield Medicare Advantage, and, and hopefully with their commercial population in the relatively near future. So that'd be a great opportunity as well. But those contracts are extremely important to us, not because of the dollars necessarily involved in the contracts, because we know providing this care and providing the services that we provide, the dollars will be there. But the opportunity in those contracts for us is to really focus on the patients involved in those contracts and to provide that high quality care. You know, quality, high quality care does not always equate to low cost care. Actually, in, in many cases, it doesn't. But high quality scores, and you can look at many ACOs, you know, there's not a direct correlation. And sure, some people would love to argue that have PhDs and whatever degrees. I'm just a doctor. I'm just a family medicine doctor. So I look at it from this standpoint. You know, high quality care does not always equate to lower costs. So from that standpoint, we look at quality, but we also are pleased to be able to see the cost. So, you know, one of the messages that's very clear, that is if you get one admission for COPD of one of my patients this year, and I'm I'm thinking of her name right now, but I can't share that with you because that'd be a HIPAA violation. But one admission that I can prevent, I can see that patient at minimum three days a week, every day in my office. She can come and see me three days a week for 52 weeks out of the year, and it would still be less than one admission to a hospital for that COPD exacerbation. So the high-touch care that we provide for our patients is based on sound evidence. There's reasons we do the high-touch care that we do. So I think that rolls into our private contracts as well. You know, if we have patients who are high risk using data analytics and predictive analytics that we have within our facilities here that we run, we can project who likely is going to be that one admission. We can project who's likely going to have to go in for CHF during Thanksgiving or Christmas, because that's typically when they go in, or their birthday, because they diabetic ate the birthday cake, or the CHF patient decided to consume the country ham. You know, there's reasons people end up in the hospitals for what happens in their in their environment. We're able to see those and project those and predict those out, and we're able to intervene. So with our private contracts, we provide the same care regardless of whether we have a contract with the company or not. So if you come to one of our practices, even though we're able to predict through our contracts who may be admitted for COPD exacerbation or CHF exacerbation, Using that experience and that knowledge whenever we see our patients as physicians in our practices now, I guess we're we're better able to identify those individuals who are at higher risk from a practice standpoint. So everybody that we see in our practices receive the same level of care whether you're in one of these contracts or not. So that's that's what I mean by the contracts are are nice. You can kind of hear that we're really not you know, in this for the money, we're in this to support the practices and and support the patients and support the physicians. That's the goal of our organization, support our communities. One thing that Dr. Staten said that we've talked about in the past, and that, that has to do with the relationship between quality and cost. And we've said many times that quality and cost are related, but they're not correlated. 
So they are related to one another, but just because one goes up doesn't mean the other will, will go in a certain direction or vice versa. They just have to be managed independently. You know, I think the data shows that, but I, I think there is a correlation between two other elements in a successful ACO. And I wanted to hit on this a little bit in our next question. There is a correlation between, you know, happier physicians and better care and better outcomes for patients. And what I mean by happier doctors, you know, like being able to tap into that sense of altruism and why you got into medicine in the first place. I mean, that's the quadruple aim, if you will, that should have been part of the triple aim, I guess, when the IHI announced it. But, you know, to have better outcomes, lower costs, higher quality, you have to have a, a physician workforce that's truly engaged and not inundated with minutia and data entry and tasks. And, you know, Dr. Webb, you mentioned that medicine isn't just a science. It's not an algorithm. It's not just check the box. I mean, there's an art to it, but there's also a human component to that. And I wanted to speak to you a little bit about how CCH approaches the quadruple aim and, and how that's been able to translate into results. And one of the things that I've learned about today in our conversation, as well as our, our other conversations leading up to today, is that a lot of how you approach that quadruple aim and being able to give the physicians that headroom to really focus on outcomes and, and really impacting the lives of patients, it's about making things simple. I mean, that's a core tenant, simplification and the artful presentation of data. And there's millions of data points in an ACO and there's so many advanced analytics and reports. And, you know, you can just look at, you know, the trade shows and all the different bells and whistles that a lot of the ACO vendors have. But, you know, you have a way to really display data simplistically. You provide basic reports. I mean, you have a really small workforce in your ACO. I think you have six employees and you're, you're dealing with hundreds of providers across 55 counties, multiple states. Can you, just as we kind of synthesize all of these learnings together, you know, taking the mission of the ACO and why you founded it and how you weren't in it for the dollars and how you were looking to improve the lives of the communities, uh, the lives of people in the communities. And how does all that intersect with that quadruple aim and the presentation of data and how you drive performance and results? It seems like your ACO has been able to figure out this formula for how do you go about and the execution capability to really bring it all home together and get physicians aligned with what you're doing. I'd, I'd love for our listeners to understand that. I mean, given that population health is a data-driven effort, you know, how do you do it without really exhausting your physicians? And, you know, that I, I think there's some lessons learned that, you know, I think our listeners would love to hear about. A hundred percent. And that's, that's, you know, one of the challenges, right? Simplification is key. We each can only process so much information and in, in our, our systems or our teams can only process so much information and so much change. Uh, in any given amount of time. That's just the limitations that uh, we as people and organizations have. In fact, that's one of the biggest challenges that I think uh, the healthcare system as a whole is dealing with over the last several years, and that's change, fatigue, if you will. It, changing so rapidly, it's very difficult to adapt uh, to what's going on. But the, the principle of simplifying things so that we can work on, on those key factors that make the most difference. As an organization, we've, we've got an excellent IT partner health endeavors that we've worked with for years, and um, they they provide the analytics that we need. They're very responsive if we need a, a report that we currently don't have. And so having that IT support uh, has been fantastic and has enabled our uh, cohesive group here to then develop very precise reports 
precise and concise reports to deliver to the practices. And, and these have been consistent through the years so that the, uh, the practices know what to expect. They know what the reports are going to contain, uh, what to do with the information in them, and how that's going to impact uh, their patients, uh, how it's going to improve uh, the quality of healthcare. And it, it's really this transition from the old model of fee-for-service, which uh, many years ago worked out okay because volumes weren't that high, and so physicians could provide very personal care and get paid fee-for-service, and it, was, it just made perfect sense. And then as the system progressed through the years, margins were reduced, volumes had to increase, and so uh, physicians found themselves having to see more and more and more patients in the fee-for-service model. And so a lot of the population health types of activities that occurred, I guess, organically, if you will, in the early days were lost. And so those are being regained now. And so we can uh, use these reports to then uh, make sure that we've covered an entire population of patients with the guidance uh, and the metrics that we need, that everyone has received the outreach and that the folks aren't uh, slipping through the cracks, if you will. And we do have programs in place uh, designed to get uh, data from the hospitals. That's also sort of a new thought in some ways, at least in, in our area of Tennessee, of, of getting ADT feeds from the hospital. So we've had a couple of, of systems responsive to that. And uh, with that data, in addition to the claims data, we're able to work with the practices to reach out to patients uh, when they're at risk before they get critically ill. If the patients start feeling sick, they're able to reach out to the practice more rapidly and not have to rely on an urgent care center that doesn't know them or an emergency room where their likelihood of admission is going to go up several fold. And so the idea of early intervention and reaching out to patients, uh, reducing the need for uh, higher acuity care uh, through better communication and preventive care has been very effective. There's one comment, um, just a, a sidebar. So our organization focally here at CCHI would include six individuals as far as, you know, six FTEs locally. If you build out our organizational chart to include our practices underneath this one umbrella organization, um, we have you know, between 750 to 800 employees overall, and we take care of about a half a million patients throughout the state of Tennessee. So, you know, the, the whole KISS principle that everyone talks about, keep it simple, stupid, we like to roll it up to the base organization to keep things as simple as possible, to drill down our data. Dr. Webb works on this more than he'll probably talk about, but he does a fabulous job at drilling down the charts and Amanda our operations manager works on drilling these numbers down in order to make it more palatable when data comes into the offices. Because if you walk into the office and you have 200 pages of data that you're handing to a doctor, they're just going to look at you laying on their desk and say, yeah, I'll get to that later. I'll read that tonight in bed. It will never happen. But they work diligently here at the ACO in order to provide a report that's really simple, one page. They can look at it. They can immediately tell who their ER frequent flyers are. They can immediately look and tell who their most expensive 20%. They can immediately look and tell who their next most expensive 20% are predicted to be. They can immediately look and see actions that need to be taken. So we have actionable data that's delivered in the hands of the physicians that they can make movement on immediately. And that's really what needs to happen, you know, throughout our healthcare system 
is it needs to be actionable data instead of data overload. You know, just because we have an information highway doesn't mean you need to be sending down 18 wheelers to everybody. Sometimes you just need to send me an Uber. That's all I need. I'm really impressed with this concept of how lean your organization is. You know, a lot of uh, ACOs will invest in significant care coordination infrastructure and, and centralize that. And you guys have gone the opposite direction and said, you know, you've got this practice level approach for patient engagement and, and this mentality of simplification. And, you know, most physician-led ACOs feel that they kind of lack the access to capital to build their own infrastructure. And so they partner with MSOs and try to create, you know, follow a more turnkey approach through economies of scale. And so recently Health Affairs, for example, reports that nearly 40% of ACOs have a management partner. And two-thirds of these ACOs reported that the partner shared in the financial risks or rewards. But as mentioned, you don't really take that approach. Your approach is this simplification, the practice level of engagement. I'm wondering if you could speak to, uh, as we wrap up our conversation today, you've got this uh, practice level approach that ultimately, I think, requires teamwork. And as the industry has advanced, you know, there's been more talk of the necessity of teamwork, the importance of teamwork being a key element for success, that all the burden doesn't lie with the physician, that that can be shared across the team. And I really think you guys emulate this well. And so as we wrap up our conversation today, can you tell us how has your cohort of practices become so effective at teamwork? And what do you say to the provider-led ACOs who think that their MSO is critical? So if, if there are another secret or two of the rural practice that you can share with our listeners that they can take home and apply in their own systems and practices, I think we'd love to hear that. The structure that we chose to approach, or I guess, you know, pursue, instead of having centralized care coordination, we have centralized data analytics. We have non-centralized care coordination because if I call somebody in Lincoln County and tell them, hey, I'm Dr. Staten, and I'm calling you from Cookville, they're going to be like, why are you calling me and I don't need insurance? or I don't need my student loans paid off or, or whatever they're calling about nowadays on your phone. So centralized care coordination as a concept, um, if you're a, a major payer, okay, fine. But you have to look at healthcare like you look at politics. All politics is local. Well, so is healthcare. You want to talk to your care coordinator. You want to talk to your nurse from your doctor's office about your care. You don't want somebody calling you from Philadelphia to do your care coordination whenever you're in Tennessee or vice versa, honestly. You want somebody that you know their name and you can call the office and you can talk to them. So we take an extremely local approach, but we do it in a statewide manner. So I think that's important for, for people to understand. You know, you don't need major dollar infrastructure to develop a centralized care coordination policy. What you need are you need practices who are engaged and who feel like they're part of the team. There's a reason we all practice rural medicine. Our, our staff, unfortunately, are probably some of the lower paid individuals in the community working for a primary care physician. You know, the revenue stream is just not usually there, but we do it for different reasons. We do it for altruistic reasons. We do it because, you know, we, we really care about the people who come in the office. So, that's the reason we decided to take the local care coordinator approach. The secondary reason for that, honestly, if the ACO were to cease to exist tomorrow, our practices are set up in such a way 
that they're strong and they're ready to move into the future. And 10 years from now, they're going to be functioning and they're going to be fine with or without us as an ACO. I can move back into my practice and roll full time and so can Dr. Webb tomorrow and take the experiences that we've learned through this. Our practices can take the experiences that, that they've learned through this and, and the processes that we've been able to provide for them. And they'll be the strongest practices in their communities. They'll provide the highest quality of care of any practice in the community. And, and that's because of the teamwork approach, the team approach that we've implemented in our ACO. You have to build trust. That's why physician-led ACOs, and whenever I say physician-led, I don't mean, you know, guys who, you know, if they get out of, of medical school and go straight through an MBA and, you know, they may be brilliant, you know, I'm sure they are, they probably have to be to do all that, but the feel of having your feet in the mud and the feel of, of getting your hands greasy and dirty whenever you're doing the real work on the ground, when you're taking care of those people who come in, when somebody walks in, you know, blood dripping down their elbow because they've almost cut their thumb off and they have nowhere else to go. The feeling of the grandmother who walks in your front door having a COPD exacerbation and everybody gathering around her and taking care of her. You can't replace that through, you know, an, an in-classroom experience. Those things are things that our peers, Dr. Webb and myself, our peers in the ACO, they know that we face those on a daily basis. So it builds trust in the fact that whenever we go out and we say, hey, you know, this is a really good idea. I think we should do this with, with Blue Cross, or I think we should approach this with CMS because I think it's going to provide better services for our patients. It's going to help strengthen our practices. It's going to help strengthen our communities. I think that's truly what is being missed across healthcare as a whole. You've got to have the physician engagement. You've got to have the practice engagement. You have to have the patient engagement. Patients have to trust you. Teamwork, you and I were talking about this. I mean, I grew up hauling hay as a kid, cutting tobacco, you know, working in the fields. If we're hauling hay, I can't be out there by myself. I can't drive the truck, drive the tractors, uh, both of them. You know, I can't lift the hay up onto the truck bed and then jump up on the truck bed and stack the hay and then drive it to the barn and then unload it onto the ground and then put it up into the, into the barn by myself. It has to be approached in a team manner, just like healthcare. We have to have strong nurses. We have to have strong non-physician providers. We have to have strong physicians. Rural healthcare has taken a major hit over the last several years, probably 15 to 20 years. We've lost hospitals. We've lost physicians in the communities. Without that team, you'll be moving one bell a hay a day. Of course, nowadays it's round bells. They don't do the square bells anymore. But uh, you can tell I'm old, but that's okay. <laughs> but, you know, it's a, uh, it's a team effort. You can't modernize the touch you have between yourself and a patient whenever they come in the door. You can't modernize the care to suture up that thumb to put that thumb back on. You can't modernize everything, but you can provide a lot of services that, that we do now to our patients to provide them higher quality care and still have the ability to provide the services I was talking about previously. So trust goes to the core of everything we do. And without the trust, there, there's truly nothing else. 
with Dr. Brent Staden, Dr. Ty Webb, Cumberland Center for Healthcare Innovation. Thank you so much today for joining us on the Race to Value. Gentlemen, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much.